today we are talking about the genius of grace. And if you missed miss the past couple of weeks, we're in a sermon series called The Genius of Jesus. It's based on the book with the same title by Pastor Erwin McManus. And each week we're taking a look at a different attribute that Jesus exemplified during his life in a really extraordinary, transformative, genius kind of way. And, you know, grace is uh, one of those words that you hear a lot in the church. It's a pretty churchy word, but it's not something we often use in our everyday life, except maybe when we're referring to athletes. You know, the Winter Olympics are currently happening, and one of my favorite winter sports to watch is figure skating. And I think the reason I love it so much is because you have these world-class athletes who are pretty much all like teenagers performing at the highest level, doing quadruple like leap flip things in the air on ice, and they just make it look so natural, like so effortless, so graceful. You know, when we see grace in action, whether it's in the graceful movement of an Olympic figure skater or the graceful words of a poet or songwriter or in the graceful actions of one person to another, it, it kind of leaves us with a feeling of a sense of awe. It's a thing of beauty. Maybe it even feels like a stroke of genius because we, we aren't that accustomed to witnessing it. In fact, it's usually the opposite. Right? Every day we experience lots of moments where grace is lacking, and largely in part because for thousands of years we humans have considered ourselves righteous by pointing to the faults, the missteps, the sins of others. I mean, spend some time with little kids, you'll quickly discover how natural this comes to human beings. It's why without fail, when my boys, Hudson 6, Leighton is 3, are found doing something they aren't supposed to be doing, and I talk to them about it, right? The very first words out of their mouth are, uh, but, but, but Leighton did this, or, or but Hudson did that, right? He started it. It's why politicians spend millions running ads that point out their competitor's hypocrisy while at the same time trying to conceal their own. It's why social media has become more suffocating than enjoyable these days because everyone is so quick to point the finger and let you know why you are wrong and they are right. And man, it gets personal, right? Like people are ruthless on social media. Condemning, it's easy. It's ugly. It's unelegant. This is why so many of us thirst for grace. In, in so many more ways than we even know. Because every single one of us have personally experienced the pain and hurt that comes from relationships where grace has been absent. We know the shame, guilt, condemnation that comes in the moments of life when a lack of grace is shown. In a world that is so often void of grace, you would assume religion would exist so that grace would flow freely. But time and time again, the opposite has been shown to be true. While, while every religion that has ever existed on this earth seems to be built on humanity's need for grace, religion most often uses our need for grace to hold us captive. Oftentimes, Religion dispenses grace as if it were the rarest of commodities. 
Have you ever played the strategy board game Settlers of Catan? It is one of my favorites. And I have to warn you, you do not want to play with me because I am very, very, very good at it. I am extremely competitive board games. I'm calculated, strategic, and I have no shame in being ruthless. I may or may not have been called a monster and Jezebel before while playing Settlers of Catan. But, you know, it's just because Garrett was mad he was losing, okay? But the goal of the game is to acquire different resources in order to build things and earn enough points to win the game. And more often than not, the resource of ore becomes the most valuable in the game. Typically because you need a lot of it in order to build cities, which are crucial for winning, but it's also usually on the lowest probability number spots, so it doesn't get acquired often. And so my strategy, to give you a little insider <laughs> into my brain, my strategy every single time I play is to prioritize my access to ore. Because I know at some point it will be a rare commodity, and if I have it, not only can I build more easily, but I can also trade it to other players, and I can demand more from those who need it most. In similar ways, many of us have seen or experienced religion hoard power by demanding works of us in order to attain grace and, and then maintain it. I grew up uh, in the church, and, and I grew up uh, viewing the Catholic church as lacking grace because I perceived that they made right standing with God or, or, or eternity contingent on conformity. I think, don't they understand that grace comes through faith and not through works? Ironically, it developed in me a lack of grace for Catholics. And as I got older, though, I realized even the Protestant churches that I've been a part of have their own list of do's and don'ts. I mean, sure, it wasn't penance or purgatory, but still a list nonetheless, and your ability to adhere to the list determined the grace that would be administered to you. Almost as if our supply of grace was in limited supply, and, and so we needed to hoard it and only give it out to the people who read their Bible consistently and didn't curse or dress immodestly or watch R-rated movies. You know, there are many of us here today who still carry scars from the lack of grace we've encountered within the church. Wounds that are still healing, that were inflicted on us by people who follow Jesus. And those wounds, they are, are so painful. Those scars go so deep because something inside of us knows that Christians, those who follow Jesus, should be the most grace-filled people. Right? There's, there's something in, inside of us that believes that the church should be the one place that's a haven for grace amidst a world void of it. After all, grace is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. The word here and throughout all the New Testament that is translated into our English word grace is the Greek word charis. Uh, charis means favor or loving kindness, goodwill. It, it, it means a gift. 
It's a word that invokes joy and pleasure, delight, enthusiasm, and love. With the emphasis being on how this, this grace, this charis, is a gift. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses variations of this word in his letters to the Romans and the Corinthians when he's talking about spiritual gifts, spiritual charis, or it could be said spiritual graces. You see, this, this grace is favor that is completely unmerited. It's unearned by the recipient, but instead offered freely by the giver. You see, grace, by definition, is undeserved. In his letter to the Galatian Christians, Paul says, hey, hey if, if you're trying to be justified by the law, if you're trying to earn your, your justification, your right standing by following a list of rules, you're actually alienating yourself from Christ. He says, you've fallen away from grace if you're doing that. Why? Well, because the moment grace is deserved, it's actually no longer grace. The moment grace is earned, it's no longer grace. If you have to work for grace, it's not grace that you're working for. Yet somehow it feels like Christians are the very first ones to forget this. And instead of being known for our grace, we're known for our lack of grace, our ungrace. And it was this very kind of self-righteousness that Jesus came to confront. Turn with me to John chapter 8. If you read through the four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that detail the life and ministry of Jesus, you'll find that grace, it's a word that is actually never uttered by Jesus. He never uses it. However, it's difficult to read any of the parables that Jesus tells, any of his teachings, or, or read any story of him helping someone or healing someone where grace is not vividly on display. And this story in John 8 is no exception. You see, early one morning, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he goes to the temple and he sits down as, as other people start to gather around in order to listen to Jesus teach. And it's at this moment that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, um, aka the religious leaders, they throw a woman in front of Jesus who's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, it can be surmised that the woman uh, had been dragged unexpectedly from her bed in, in which she had been sleeping and brought to Jesus against her will. And look at the second part of verse 3. It says, They, the religious leaders, made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, we don't know much about this woman. Uh, first century Israel was a patriarchal society, so women were often viewed more as possessions or property. This is why the religious leaders of that day wouldn't have had a second thought about using this woman as a mere pawn in their scheme to try and trap Jesus. But we see that Jesus' response in this moment is silence. They ask him a direct question, and we're told he just bends down and starts writing on the ground with his finger. That's like a weird thing to do, right? And so I'm sure the religious leaders are a little confused, right? Is he hard of hearing? What's going on? So they keep 
accusing, uh, throwing accusations, questioning Jesus, trying to make him condemn this woman that they've brought before him. Now, it's curious that the woman is there alone in front of Jesus. I, I mean, I've tried to look at this from every angle. To me, it seems incredibly difficult to commit adultery by yourself. Yet, the man is nowhere to be found. This woman's accusers didn't drag him in front of Jesus to be held accountable for his actions as well. And after seeming to ignore their questions and accusations, Jesus finally stood. And here's what he said to them. Look at verse 7. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 guys, I, I get it, I get it. Yeah, let's do that, let's do that. Okay, who, who, who doesn't have any sin here? You get to be the first to throw the stone. And then he just bends down and begins writing on the ground again. And it's then and only then that her accusers find themselves arrested by their own hypocrisy. You see, when they heard the criteria Jesus laid before them, we're told that they just, they begin dropping the stones, one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, and they just quietly walk away. I mean, just imagine that setting, right? This, they drag this woman, they throw her before Jesus, they're yelling and making accusations and asking Jesus questions and attempt to trap him. They're literally holding stones in their hand so that they can throw them at this woman and end her life. But in the end, only Jesus and the woman were left. And it's in this moment, Jesus stood and he looks directly at her. And he says this in verse 10, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And the religious leaders thought they had trapped Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Will he violate the law in order to show grace? Or will he uphold the law and withhold grace? I'm sure they're thinking to themselves, surely he doesn't believe that the grace of God is greater than the holiness of God. If Jesus had given her grace, man, they were eager and ready to condemn him as well. And in the face of that unconquerable dilemma, Jesus showed that the law exists to point us to grace. The law doesn't exist to keep us from grace. The law exists to point us to grace. And as we read through the Gospels, we see time and time and time again these stories of Jesus showing grace or teaching us about grace. I mean, here's, here's just a few of them. The parable of the Good Samaritan. You know what it's about? It's a story about grace. The parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's a story about grace. The prodigal son. It actually would be better titled the prodigal's father because it's a story not so much about the son and what he did, but about the father and the grace that he gave freely, undeservingly. When Jesus meets Matthew in Matthew chapter 9 and he calls him to be his disciple, and then the religious leaders, they're offended because Jesus is eating with sinners. You know what the theme of that story is? Grace. 
when Jesus meets Zacchaeus, a hated tax collector, a traitor to his own people, yet Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for a meal, you know what is on display in that story? Grace. When Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, even though he knows her deepest, darkest sins, her greatest points of shame, what does he show to her? Grace. Or the story we looked at last week where, where Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends, betrays Jesus, selling him out to the religious authorities so that they can arrest, condemn, and crucify him. And in that moment of betrayal, as Judas greets Jesus with a kiss, just as a family member or, or your closest of friends would do, Jesus' response, it's so simple in that moment. You might miss its power. He said, do what you came to do, my friend. And nothing could have cut more deeply than to be betrayed by the kiss of a confidant. Yet Jesus wasn't moved to violence or retaliation or vengeance in that moment. Nor, as we talked about last week, was Jesus powerless to destroy in that moment. But man, Jesus made it clear that grace was what he was all about. Sometimes an act of grace is more than our minds can comprehend. Why would you choose to still love the very one who betrayed you? Why would you not use force against those who know only hostility? Why would you show grace to your enemy only so they could then turn around and deliver a fatal blow to you? Neither Jesus' accusers nor his followers could make sense of his choices. Isn't it true that there are moments in life that make allowances for the worst of us? I mean, maybe you lost your job and financial security, and, and so you snap at a friend who, who doesn't know what's going on. Maybe you shut down emotionally because someone broke your heart. Maybe you make a cutting response to someone's harsh words to you. Maybe you cut out of your life a friend or a family member who's betrayed your trust. We all face moments like this when our reactions are forgivable ones once they're the context of the situation's understood, right? The frustration, it's understandable. The anger, it's rationalized. The hurt is real and the unforgiveness is justified. Sure, Jesus can show grace and forgiveness to the person who's wounded him the deepest because he's God, right? But there's no way I could do that. I'm just human. You don't realize what that person's done. You, you don't understand the pain and the brokenness that they have caused to me or to other people I love. And, and they aren't even sorry. They haven't even spoken to me since. They're just ignoring it. They want to sweep it under the rug. They don't deserve my forgiveness. They, they don't deserve grace. You're right. You are absolutely right. But if they deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. You see, when we are focused on the receiver of grace, on the person who needs our grace, there are times when grace is impossible to give because the hurt is too real. The wound is too deep. What they've done or haven't done, it is too big to forgive. But what Jesus shows us time and time again in all of these examples is that grace is less about the receiver and more about the giver. Let me say that again. 
Grace is less about the receiver and more about the giver. Here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes in the church, we define grace as receiving something you don't deserve, right? That's a simple, easy-to-remember definition of grace. Grace is receiving something you don't deserve. But that definition, although it's easy and simple to remember, is still lacking because it puts all of the focus, all of the emphasis on the receiver of grace. But if grace is something completely undeserved, if grace can in no way be worked for or earned by the person who needs it, then it's actually not about the receiver at all, who they are or what they've done or what they haven't done. You see, the concept of grace in the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks more to the heart of the giver of grace. Grace is a favor from the giver that actually has enthusiasm and love as its foundation. You see, God doesn't give us grace because of who we are and what we've done. No, he extends grace because of who he is and what he wants to do for us. God doesn't reluctantly extend grace to us because he has to. No, God enthusiastically extends us grace because he loves us. Grace always reveals more about the giver than the receiver. Maybe think of it kind of like Christmas morning. Okay, Christmas morning takes on a whole new meaning once you become a parent because there's just something so special, so magical about like watching your little kids open gifts. And when you think about it, getting gifts at Christmas is kind of ridiculous, right? Like it's not their birthday, it's Jesus's birthday. It's actually not even Jesus's birthday, but it's when we celebrate his birthday, whatever. That's another conversation for another time. But the point is, my boys did nothing to earn their Christmas gifts. So yes, their, their gift is an expression of grace because they didn't deserve it. But at the same time, it's so much more than that because as their parent, the foundation of my relationship with them is love. Love is what drives me to know them, to learn what they like, what they're into, what they don't like, to, to know what they want for Christmas, what's on their list, and, and put thought and intention into getting the gift that I give them. It's a gift I'm not giving them reluctantly or begrudgingly, but no, there's love and joy and enthusiasm in giving it because, man, I get to witness this. What is this? What is, what is it? This is something I wanted. What is it? It's a red towel. It's a spiny it's funny. Look at this lighted. Daddy, mommy, look. What? My spiny adventure. A spiny adventure friends. That's so cool, huh? And I got this. Now, yeah, I know they didn't do anything to earn it. In fact, on Christmas morning, they were being like little punks and whining and complaining. And I was just like, oh my gosh, can we please get through breakfast without any meltdowns? But man, even in the midst of that, I love them. I couldn't wait to give them their gift because I know the joy it brings them. See, grace reveals more about the giver than the receiver. God is such a good and loving God. The grace that he gives to us is not given begrudgingly 
or reluctantly or only in part. No, it's a grace that he gives to us freely, abundantly with joy and love as the foundation because he just can't wait for us to experience the goodness, the beauty, the genius of his grace. And maybe you are here today and you've never experienced that grace before. You've never accepted that gift from God. Let Jesus give you that grace today. Maybe you've experienced God's grace before, but but you think it's something you have to keep earning in order to keep it, in order to maintain it. And so you strive and you strive and you strive, but you always seem to fall short. And then we know what happens. Shame sets in. Condemnation sets in. It brings me back to the story from John 8 of the, of the woman caught in adultery. Think about it. It's such a powerful visual of her accusers literally dropping their stones one by one and walking away. These men wanted to stone her, wanted to knock her down, but grace lifted her up. Jesus lifted her up. That's what grace does. So imagine if in that moment, when it's just her and Jesus and he turns and he looks her in the eye and he says, has no one condemned you? Then neither do I. Imagine if in that moment she starts picking up the stones herself in order to knock herself back down, right? We'd say like, oh my God, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Don't you know the gift of grace you've been given? Isn't this exactly what many of us do? You receive grace from Jesus, but now you're the one picking the stones back up. You're the one beating yourself up. You're the one shaming yourself, condemning yourself. Jesus has lifted you up, so why are you trying to keep yourself down? The person you need to give grace to the most is you. Because grace is not about what you've done or what you haven't done or how much you've earned it or haven't earned it. Grace is about Jesus. And he says you're worthy enough to receive it. And until we fully understand that grace and believe that grace and receive that grace, it will be impossible to live it out and show grace to others or even to ourselves. What I hope we remember today is that grace reveals more about the giver than the receiver. And so I want to encourage you to spend time this week reading through a few of the stories from that list I provided earlier of Jesus showing grace. We'll include the list in the chat and in the study guide so you can easily reference it. And as you read this week, whether that's on your own or with your community group, write down a list of what those stories reveal to you about the heart of God. What what do those stories reveal to you about who Jesus is and his love for us? I'll close with this. Author uh, Philip Yancey says that grace is Christianity's best gift to the world. Think about that. Grace is Christianity's best gift to the world. You know what the world doesn't need? They don't need any more arguing. The world doesn't need any more people who are so convinced that they're right and others are wrong. The world doesn't need more criticism and condemnation. 
What the world needs are more people who are willing to be used by the Holy Spirit as vessels of God's radical, genius, illogical grace to those around them. Grace is the best gift that we can offer to the world. So the question I'd love to leave you with is this, how am I giving the gift of grace today? How are we giving that gift of grace in our homes with our families today? How how are we giving that gift of grace in our workplaces with the coworker who annoys us or the boss who treats us poorly? How are we giving the gift of grace to the neighbor we don't like or the obnoxious uncle we disagree with politically? How are we giving the gift of grace to that person who has hurt us and they still haven't apologized? They still haven't taken the first step towards fixing that relationship. It's broken, and they don't care about restoring it. The person who in no way, shape, or form deserves our grace. Because those undeserved places are precisely where grace becomes grace. This is the beauty of it. The elegance of it, the the genius of grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It can't be qualified, but God gives it to us anyways because he loves us unconditionally and we get to be givers of that grace as well. You see, Jesus left us with a new way of seeing the world. The beauty of grace is that it frees us. It doesn't hold us captive. It frees us from the burden of judging each other. It frees us from the burden of condemning ourselves. The genius of grace is that it lifts us above guilt and shame and it shows us a better way to exist. Jesus extends grace to every person in every moment and when we choose to live by grace and give it freely, we too get to step into the genius of grace, the genius of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so humbled and grateful for the grace that you freely give us. We know we don't deserve it, but you give it anyways because you love us and you want us to experience the best that you have for us. So God, I pray for anyone today who needs to receive that grace I pray for anyone today who keeps trying to earn it, keeps trying to fix things instead of letting your grace cover it. God, I pray that they would be reminded of just how much you love them, of the extent that you went to to convince them that there's nothing that they can't do that can outrun your grace. And God, I pray that you would show us this week and empower us this week by your Holy Spirit to be givers of that grace in the small ways of our everyday life and in the big ways, in the big hurts, that you would teach us how to follow your lead, how to walk like you've walked, and give that gift of grace to others freely. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray.
Amen. Wait, wait, before you go, three things. First, please consider becoming one of Cornerstone Fellowship's financial partners. Your donations will ensure that you'll be able to continue enjoying helpful, and hopefully life-changing messages like the one you just watched. And number two, please share the link to this message with anyone who you know needs it or will be blessed by it or post the link to your own personal social platforms. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted whenever we post more content. Thanks for watching.